I'm quite fascinated and I guess I, I have a personal stake in this on, you know, being Asian and the Asian upbringing and, and you know, the, the stereotypes that are out there as you are quite familiar with. And as I said, my dissertation is on the model minority myth. And I, I, I thought you wrote a really nice summary post about it a year ago about um, you wrote about the invisible victims of an effective double bind. I, I could read out the post, but I think it might be better if you give your thoughts on what that, or just explain what that effective double bind is and your evolving thoughts on being Asian, especially in a white majority um, environment. The double bind is this, right? On one hand, Asians are told that they are super smart, super intelligent, and super skilled, such that that becomes the default and a norm by which people are judged. People from that particular ethnic group are praised. And whoever fails to meet that standard, even for one single moment, are therefore deemed to be a mis- sort of an outlier anomaly or a failure. So that's one of the binds. And yet the other binds is all of the deprecating and subjugative narratives about Asians. The Asians are less attractive. Asians are less athletic. Asians are more likely to be uh, timid and suffer from temerity and cowardice, or at the very least be averse to confrontation. All of these are stereotypes that may or may not be sociologically and empirically grounded. They usually aren't. And yet that creates another bind because that's the controlling image by which Asians are typified. And here I'm looking at the black feminist thought, right, as to how black women under a misogynistic uh, a city, a system that embodies misogynoir are often excluded from certain jobs and occupations because they are seen to carry characteristics that are allegedly undesirable. And that would apply the very same logic to the way Asian Americans or Asians at large in the West are seen sometimes, right? And you throw in a third bind, which is the McCarthyist witch hunt and the politicized, dramatized, or the melodramatic politicization of the ethnic Chinese identity identity, where the Chinese diaspora are being politicized not just by governments at home or governments back in China, but also are politicized by the host countries and the countries in which many of them are citizens. They see themselves as Americans, as French, as Brits, and as long-standing residents Australians. And yet, because of the geopolitics, even they, despite having made the, the homes and the careers out of this country that they call, you know, that they think would be their home and would stick out for them, they are now being targeted. They're now being tarnished with these sweeping generalizations concerning their motivations, their connections, and personal status. And that, to me, is a triple bind. So you've got one, two, three, right? The bind of excessively uh, demanding expectations, the bind of your being inefficacious in certain respects and lacking particular competences. And then there's the bind of the politics. There's the bind of the ideology that, again, typecasts you as le tonger, the stranger, the outsider. And it is the conjunction and the integration of these three dimensions that culminates at the subjugation of the Asians in an invisible fashion. Why? Because Asians are told they don't need to speak up, they shouldn't agitate, they shouldn't engage in political movement. They are very successful. And it is how generations, decades after decades of gaslighting occur. It is not so much the direct denial of rights as the indirect erasure of suffering and suppression that keeps Asians' mouth shut, okay, shut in the West, but also in countries where their presence at large is no longer welcome or is felt as allegedly invasive and also inimical to the indigenous population's interests. And of course, the same dynamics applies to other peoples as well. The Hispanics, Latinas, 
Latino population in America, or, you know, migrants from and refugees, of course, from uh, Ukraine, now in parts of Europe, and the hostile harassment that they have encountered, or indeed, the hundreds, if not thousands of refugees and economic migrants from northern Africa who are seeking merely a comfortable shelter, a decent roof and a decent quality of life being turned away and told that they are brethren who are not deserving of just and dignified treatment. These are all folks that are suffering invisibly because they do not have political capital. They don't have airtime because they're not seen as powerful lobbyists and they really aren't. They don't have capital, nor do they have connections. And that's why whilst we pity and we fetishize over the very pitying of these individuals, you do not ever you know, grant them the agency and the platform to speak out and to voice out for the true uh, feelings and sentiments on the plights that they're encountering. And it's ironic because we are commenting on their plights and on their suffering uh, whilst not being them, right? And, and that's also why, you know, I tend to eschew or avoid talking about racism against groups of which I'm clearly not a part, even though I would stand, as you know, David, very firmly against anti-Semitism, against Islamophobia, against the anti-Black race that we saw in parts of mainland China in the early days of the COVID pandemic. We, we must stand against racism across all contexts. And yet, at the very same time, a broader question thus arises. What are you prepared to do? You know, what are you prepared to do? What are we prepared to do? What can we do? That is a question we need to think about what I have no answer to or no clear singular solution to. You have no clear singular solution too. However, two years ago, you did make an effort to build a community for solidarity. You said you were in the process of putting together a community.